In the end, they were all Fredo. Ten Thoughts on Succession by Matt Ruby. That's me. So two things before we get rolling here. First, if you don't want any succession spoilers, there are some coming up, just so you know that. And second, we're going to kind of change up the format of what we usually do here. I uh, brought in producer Jeremiah McVeigh, and I want to talk about uh, Succession, the HBO show that just wrapped, and 10 thoughts that I've had. And uh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and reading articles about it, and uh, I think it's kind of a good format, the podcast sort of recap discussion of a show. Uh, so I thought we'd give it a whirl. Does that sound good, Jeremiah? Sounds great to me. <laughs> all right. I like the enthusiasm. Um, all right. So number one, I think the first thing I want to mention is how much as viewers, we all need to look in the mirror and examine our own hypocrisy uh, when watching a show like Succession. The other one that comes to mind is White Lotus, which I would label both these shows as sort of like we're mocking the rich and like pointing out all their foibles and what you know terrible people they are in many ways. Yet at the same time, I feel like there's a lack of acknowledgement of how much we're getting off on watching their lifestyle, how much these shows are built on these exotic locales and the fancy trips and destinations and clothes and helicopters and all the rest of it. And so I feel a little bit like as viewers, there's like we're wanting to have our cake and eat it too, that we're wanting to hate these super rich people and, you know, fuck the 1% and all that shit. But then we're also actually wanting to consume all the things that they're consuming vicariously through them. Uh, and so I just think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I can't think of a better word than hypocrisy for us as viewers, as we're sort of mocking yet also greedily consuming their lifestyles. Right. I don't disagree with that necessarily, but I do think it's important to note that these shows, what they do is show these people as miserable. So it's kind of, it's a real punching up. And both of those shows are also in their way satire, I think. So um, I I think that, sure, there is an element of like, as you said, getting off on the trappings of being rich. But it's, I think the thing that is cathartic about watching the show is being like, oh, money doesn't buy you happiness. These people have shitty lives and they hate everybody around themselves, including themselves. So Sure, I agree with that. And I think as viewers, yes, all of this feels good. I mean, nothing feels better than like seeing these gorgeous destinations and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the rich stuff while also getting the moral superiority hit that we get (laughs) from like, oh, and look at how terrible they are. I would never be like that. Um, And I think it's also which makes it it's part of what makes it so entertaining, you know, and I think it's also in how these shows are shot and the, you know, choices made by the director and the showrunner. Right. They're very luxurious shows to consume. So for us to be, you know, sort of mocking luxury, while I would say consuming, consuming these shows that are in a way a luxury item. So I, I just think right. there's some there's some note that is like a little bit off there that or just I don't feel all the time like we're actually acknowledging that when we're discussing these shows. So it's just something I think is like at least worth pointing out. But sure, that's sure. that said, I greatly enjoyed both those shows and yeah. you know drank drank up every episode. So I'm as guilty as anyone else. But I, I think there's just something to be said for like ah I hate the one percent now. Let me see their helicopters. There's just something right. something right, odd right, right. about that to me. I, I get it. I, I, and I, I do think that there is an escapist element to it that most of us can't afford this stuff. So it's our only way to experience it is vicariously through these characters. And maybe that is a little hypocritical, but I think 
most people aren't going to get that chance. But uh, do we want to move on to your next thought? Let's do it. Uh, number two, I was just getting vibes of two of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, first one is uh, The Graduate, uh, which I love, you know, the Dustin Hoffman and Bancroft movie from, I think it's 68. Uh, and just that final scene of them on the bus uh, mm-hmm. after, after, you know, the spoiled, well, spoiler for the graduate <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the other movie after the graduate, but like, uh, that scene where you know, they spoil the wedding, they run out of the church and then they get on the bus and how that final shot just lingers on them after, you know, that feeling of after you get what you want and mm-hmm. almost every other movie and, and show cuts right there with the climactic finale and the hero gets what they want. But, but in the graduate, we, it doesn't end there. We stay with them on the back of the bus. And this, my interpretation is like slowly dawning on them. What have they done? Mm-hmm. What, what is the cost here? What is the outcome? Do I even really belong with this person or want to be with this person? You know, sort of the aftermath of running away of like, well, where did I wind up? And I think right. there's something beautiful about that. And in succession, what we have is Tom and Shiv in the limo at the end, where Shiv has made the fateful decision uh, to, you know, kind of stab her brother in the back, putting leaving Tom to be the one in charge. Uh, and Tom, you know, sort of coming back and, you know, this sort of devil's bargain that they've made with each other and right. hit him reaching out his hand and her not holding it, but just sort of lightly resting it atop. Uh, his hand and how we're kind of in my mind left with that similar feeling like okay they both made their choices and quote unquote got what they wanted but are they happy is this really what they wanted what is the end game here and how there's we're left to linger on that sort of sense of of uh mystery and melancholy in a way that i thought was was really neat and i think was an overt reference uh to the graduate i heard uh, the director i forget his name um talk, mm. talking about that and actually mentioning that analogy um so, mark mylod i think that's I'm right. not sure if that's pronounced correctly but yeah yeah that's him and then uh the other film uh the godfather 2 uh another one of my favorite movies of all time and you know spoiler alert ahead for that if you haven't seen the godfather 2 yet why are you even listening to this podcast go watch the godfather 2 like come on and uh, the graduate honestly yeah both of them like yeah. literally two two of my top five movies of all time and uh to me it, that is uh the michael fredo dynamic which i think we even saw some of the the Michael Kendall uh, sort of comparisons in the penultimate episode, you know, him at the church giving the eulogy reminded me of Michael mm-hmm. at the end of Godfather one, you know, when the baptism's happening and all the, the families, the five families heads are getting murdered and uh, all the assassinations are going on. I felt like there was some references going on there. And then in this one, Kendall and Roman in the conference room, and uh, versus Michael and Fredo in Cuba, when Michael realizes that Fredo has betrayed him, and you know hugs him close and kisses him, and says, I, "I know it was you," and you know he can't murder him yet, but he's it's it's the end of their relationship. It's frayed, and it's this this combination of like family and uh, a hug and loyalty, and but also with violence uh, underpinning it all. And I felt that way when. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Kendall hugged Roman and actually just you know pushed his stitches up against his shoulder to the point where you know and, and Roman has this whole sort of BDSM background that we know about where you know and was abused by his father so pain equaling love and and this connection between them and and uh, Kendall on some level almost giving him what he wants by mm. by being violent with him um, and then that that twisting in that final conference room blowout scene where he lunges at him and tries to choke him, which just visually looks so much like that scene in Godfather two, where, you know, Fredo and and Michael are, you know, just sort of hugging, but it's also the end of their relationship in some way. And, uh, I just thought it was uh, interesting to see those notes and to kind of feel that influence, you know, from, you know, of Jesse Armstrong and how he kind of inserted those things into the show in a way that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I think this is a good call on these. I And I think the power of those two movies, because they're also two of my favorite movies. I mean, come on, they're undeniable classics. You know, they're they're beloved. But I, I think the power of them is that I didn't specifically think of those moments or those references, but I do think I have those so internalized that somehow I still got that emotional impact as if I did, if that makes sense. Um, I think I internally knew that this was referencing The Graduate without even thinking about The Graduate specifically somehow. Uh, my, my one thing I would point out is what I think is interesting is that The Graduate moment and the Shiv and Tom moment, I think, are thematically parallel, whereas I think for the most part, the Fredo moment from Godfather 2, the kiss of death scene, and Kendall and, and Roman's confrontation is more thematically contrasting in a way because um, Al Pacino is in such absolute control of himself and it's a very calculated thing. And Kendall is acting from primal instinct, it seems. And maybe you're right. Maybe there is some part of him that's like it's a loving thing, even as it's meant to harm his brother because everybody in in the show seems to know his proclivities towards uh equating pain with with uh, pleasure so i don't know but I, I thought it was an interesting point and we know that logan abused roman so and yeah, Ro- roman, roman de- desperately wants his father's love so in his mind it's all wrapped up but yeah i agree right. i think what we have is kendall kind of wishes he was michael or visualizes mm-hmm. himself as michael but what we're seeing in this episode is that in the end, they're all Fredo. And, and <laughs> yes. so you have Kendall maybe trying to pull a Michael Corleone type power move on his brother. Yet in the end, it backfires on him and Roman, you know, and right. him just kind of turn into children again in the end. I think that's the scene in their mother's kitchen is, you know, recreating them as children. And I think in the end, in the boardroom, when they start, you know, wrestling with each other and getting violent with each other, that's that they're just children. As, as Logan says, they're not serious people. They're children. Right. Right. Because they've never been raised properly and, you know, matured. Absolutely. Good call on, on those references, I think. All right. Let's move on to number four, which is, I think how much this is one of those shows that's quote unquote about business, but it's what really dumb people think business is like. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's this constant like, should we say nine? Well, maybe we should say seven. What if, what if we say 10? Let's go 10 and a half. And, and the way they're always, well, it, let's pitch, let's pitch. It's always giving presentations and pitching. There's, there's no uh, sense of the actual 
day-to-day nature of what running a business is like, which is reading contracts and dealing with employment stuff in uh, you know, a, a boring, dry, mundane way. One, because that wouldn't be entertaining. Uh, two, because these aren't serious people who actually understand business or would like go through that. That's what like Frank and Carl and Jerry are for. And then three, because, you know, I think the audience, we as the audience don't really care about business. You know, we, we're not, we're, we're want this sort of like video game version of what, uh, running a business is like. Um, mm-hmm. and then I think the other thing is like, you know, how much they're constantly just going on handshake deals. Like to me, if you want a big business lesson from succession, get it in writing is the lesson. Cause they're constantly just sort of like wink, wink deals and like, Oh, Mencken will take care of us later. Or, you know, uh, you know, uh, Shiv and Matson being like, Oh, he kind of like promised me CEO, but did he? And so they keep, you know, winding up in these situations and like the I always think of like uh, Wiley Coyote. They keep finding out there's there's no ground underneath them because they never have any of these deals put down in writing. They're always just right. trading on favors in a way that I don't think is again how actual uh, smart business people would ever operate. Right. Yeah. There's several times where there's a piece of paper and there's questions about it within this show. Um, but yeah, I, I still think your point stands that no one ever has it in clear writing that is indisputable and. I, I think it goes back to your point about about them all being Fredo, and basically they never grew up. They're all play acting at being adults and at being business people, and they don't really know what they're doing. So why would they show them knowing what they're doing? But it also, in a way, the way you described it, it reminds me of like The Office or something of that show. Like they had a party every week. Basically, it was always a, it, was, it could have been called The Office Party. Most of the most weeks of that show like they rarely showed them actually doing work they're just pranking each other or having like the latest birthday party or something or retirement party or whatever the hell they were doing on that show but still entertaining yeah no i think that's a great call like kendall thinks he's michael corleone but he's actually michael scott (laughs) yeah i'll yeah i'll buy that all right let's move on uh number five just the phrase pain sponge which is something that Matson says to Tom when he's you know trying to make the call on whether to to bring him aboard. He's like, "I need a pain sponge," and I, it's beautiful writing, great phrase. And for me, immediately called to mind one of the people in our society that I hate the most, who's Roger Goodell, uh, the commissioner of the NFL, uh, and something I've come to terms with in my own ways. Like the reason I hate him is because that's what he's there for. He's there to absorb all the hatred uh, that would otherwise be targeted at the you know NFL owners who he works for who are all these yeah. billionaires many of them uh, openly you know right wingers uh, many of them children of wealthy people akin to the characters in succession uh, some of them seem to be rather racist you know blackballing Colin Kaepernick you know the so many terrible rancid decisions and mm-hmm. forcing Roger Goodell to sort of be the face of it and absorb like the lightning rod that uh, absorbs all that criticism so they get to just float around under the surface in their you know yachts and jets and i feel like to me it was like this great crystallization in one phrase of you know what roger goodell is to the nfl owners is what tom is going to be to madsen and that role and how and then i think the question is where else is that happening in society where else are we sort of throwing our ire at someone who's really just a shield for someone else Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah, I don't have much to say on this. Uh, I just wanted to point out that this is not the first time I've heard you reference this. Like, I, I, I think you brought up Roger Goodell um, being, I mean, now you have the word for it, pain sponge yeah. for, for the owners. Um, so I just find that interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's similar to Tom. Uh, he gets paid, you know, $40 million a year or whatever to just, you know, go go take the slings and arrows from everyone yeah. else. So I guess it's good work if you can get it. Right. All right, let's move on. So what I've seen in a few different places is people ranking the characters of on Succession, sometimes who you'd want to have most. I saw uh, uh, the most vile to least vile, that sort of thing. So I want to enter in with the three most underrated people involved with the show that I haven't heard discussed in any of those conversations. And the first one is Nicholas Breitel, the guy who wrote the score, because I think it's probably the best musical score I've ever seen in any TV show. Um, and I, it's just, uh, and I think there's a couple of things. One, like the, just the original piece, how it sort of combines this, you know, uh, Baroque sort of uh, classical sort of vibe with these hip hop beats in a way that's uh, sort of old money and new money, you know, and modern culture mixed together. And then just all the variations on it, how it can be slow, how it can be fast, how it can be, uh, you know, sort of tell a story in different ways. And I think, you know, just how that s music has been used throughout the show has been really impressive. Um, mm -hmm. You want to chime in on that or should I go through all three? Um, well, I could just say that, I, first of all, I think it's Nicholas Brittel. Fair um, enough. But, uh, and I kind of have a connection to him. What? My <laughs> my ex's brother was friends with him, and I actually designed Nicholas Brittel's wedding website when he got married. Get out. Uh, when, when I was doing that for a little while back in the day. Neat. Um, so he, I remember him being a nice guy and my limited interactions with him. He was in a band um, once, right? Do you know about that? I don't know about that, but I totally believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he's he's great. Um, his work on this is great. His work with Barry Jenkins is great. Uh, he did the scores, of course, for Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk, which I think is one of the best scores of recent years. And he's done plenty of other work, too. He, I think he did the score for the recent Andor series, uh, Star Wars series from on Disney+. Plus. And I mean, like I said, plenty of other stuff. He's he's working a lot these days, and that's great because he is so good. So yeah, yeah. And one quote that he gave about the the soundtrack was, "Everything would be a little too big for itself, a little out of proportion the way the Roy yeah. family sees themselves." And so yeah. I find that interesting when it's your job to sort of distill an entire show into a piece of music. It sounds like such a challenge, and I just think you know he did a great job on this show. Totally. Uh, the next person I think is a uh, underrated sort of person involved with the show is Michael Schulman, who <laughs> wrote that New Yorker profile about Jeremy Strong. I think it was between seasons two and three, maybe between three and four. I forget. But like the psychodrama just around Jeremy Strong as an actor who's brilliant in this show, his method approach, how much it was annoying to everyone else on the show and all the other actors and that that tension that almost seems to mirror the characters on the show and the resentment and yet affection at the same time going on between him and the other cast members. And I feel like that story and the aftermath of it was almost like another half season of succession in its own way if you were really obsessive about the show. Yeah, I think that was between the third and fourth season because I think it came up, I think it came out like around the time of that episode where Kendall almost died in a pool 
And so there was speculation because of the big profile and that that he was going the character was going to be killed off mm. and wasn't going to be in the next episode or, or something like that. So, yeah, I think it came at the end of season three. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the other sort of underrated person, which I guess is actually like a group of people, is the cinematographers who shoot the show. Uh, Patrick Capone, Christopher Knorr, and Andrej Parekh. I uh, hope I'm saying that pr- properly. But I think uh, when I hear people discussing the show, there's a lot of talk about how incredible the acting and writing is, and then a little bit on the directing, but I rarely hear the cinematography mentioned. And I think it's such like a, a huge player in the show, how there's... There's a, it's almost shot in this documentary style, but with like, you know, things are out of focus and there's rack, rack pulls and like camera pans. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you're another person in the room as this is happening. And I think so much of the show is actually just people in a room talking, yet it injects sort of this motion and, and energy throughout the show in a way that's part of what gives it such a unique vibe in a way that I think is, uh, you know, uh, to me, like there's a real like filmmaking lesson to be taken there of how like sort of cinematography can impact a show and, and take it from like feeling like a play into feeling like something that's energetic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I agree totally about the cinematographers, uh, the camera people being such an integral part. But I do want to say, I think we should add in there the editors because they shoot this multicam often, I think, mm. and shoot a lot. So those editors have their work cut out for them, I think, in assembling the show and getting it to work as well as it does. Of, I think they do a lot of finding the right moments from all these takes that can, that while being directed precisely, you know, a lot of it is still from my understanding, a little reliant on chance of like just capturing the moments. And so I think those editors have to find those and pull them out and really highlight them. And they do a a sensational job. For sure. And then I think also like uh, how the funeral scene, I think that entire scene was shot with only like four cameras and one and and in long takes. And then the episode where they find where Logan dies and they find out at Connor's wedding, there's a huge like 25 minute chunk that's all done in like a, a single take a la, right. you know, uh, what is it? The the Thin Man, the Third Man, or there's a classic long take there or that Goodfellas scene where he's entering the Copa and the, you go, the camera follows him down the stairs and into the room. I think, you know, those sorts of, you know, choices from a direction and DP standpoint are like a lot of viewers aren't you don't know it on a conscious level as you're watching it, yet you're feeling it. And there's this visceral yeah. impact that uh, that you get as a viewer when you're watching uh, people film that way. And it makes it much harder on the, the cast and crew uh, and the editors, I'm sure. But like then uh, I think it's part of what makes you know some of these episodes feel so special. Yeah, totally. Maybe you were thinking of Touch of Evil, another Orson Welles. That might be it. The one in Mexico, yeah. the opening shot. Yes, yeah. yes. There you go. Yeah. Uh, All right, let's move on to number seven, the meal fit for a king smoothie, you know, that's uh, given to Kendall, who has a sip, and then it never really gets eaten, gets dumped on his head, Uh, which is, this ties in with something that I've noticed in a little bit earlier, and I haven't gone back through the entire show, but I don't think we ever see them eat. None of the Roy siblings are, we see them, you know, at meals or, you know, having dialogue around, but none of them are ever actually like putting food in their mouth. And I think we see with the mother when she invites them, uh, she, she gives them barely any food to eat in the first place and only offers them knobs 
of bread in the freezer. And so to me that like, first of all, if I was super wealthy, one of the things I'd be doing is eating incredible food all the time. And they seem to not even care about it at all. Uh, and I just think there's something interesting about, you know, uh, them, and their relationship to food. There's one episode where they have a breakfast meeting and they just don't even touch any food. Uh, and when we see Tom and Matson actually like finalizing their deal with each other, we it's after they just ate and they both have eaten fish for dinner. And we know that, that we've literally seen how they will eat. And I just think there's something mm -hmm. interesting about that. And then there's that uh, episode on the yacht where Tom actually takes Logan's piece of chicken and just eats it and walks away. And so I just think there's like, to me, this will be something interesting on a rewatch to go through and pay attention to like what's going on with these characters and food and, you know, wealth and how much they're just never actually like nourished in any way. And perhaps analogous to, you know, the parenting that they received where they were nur never nourished uh, by their parents emotionally. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's this physical manifestation of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something I'd ever really noticed till you pointed it out. Um, but I can definitely remember Tom eating, but I can't necessarily remember anyone else eating. Um, maybe Greg. And they definitely all drink. Greg eating the sushi. Remember? Yeah. No one else. Tom is never eating. And Greg eats the sushi. And No, Tom does eat. I, Tom eats that chicken. They go oh, out for waffles or whatever when, when he thinks he's going to jail. That's and right. Then that's right. When they both think they're going to jail. You're right. Tom does eat and frequently. I think I was just remembering the ATN presidential episode where the mm, yeah. he doesn't want the bodega sushi. That that's where he draws right, the right. line. Um, but otherwise, you're right. He does eat throughout. And I think they both do. They both eat um, in the bore on the floor thing uh, when they get sausages or whatever thrown at them. I can't remember. Well, that's food is a weapon. Yes. You know? Yes. Totally. So, but I don't recall. I. Uh, like I said, it's going to be interesting to go. It was only something I picked up on this season. I'm like, huh, yeah. I got to go back. But like in my head, I can't remember any scene where I'm actually seeing them eat. Right, right. Number eight, uh, I just feel like we're right off the heels of the uh, Ron DeSantis you know, presidential launch on Twitter with Elon Musk. That was pretty much a disaster. And so, uh, you know, I guess we're, we're lucky we didn't see, uh, you know, President Mencken goes on Gojo Spaces sort of uh, arrangement on this episode. But uh, one of the Twitter, you know, venture capitalists and Elon Musk uh, kiss ass guys uh, is named Jason Kalkanis. And he wrote a tweet, there's no way this is over. And if this is over, I'm funding a startup just to make AI episodes of Succession. And I just thought that was hilarious because I think that's exactly what Kendall is going to do next. He's going to fund a startup to make AI bullshit <laughs> art, you know, based on the news or whatever's popular. And, uh, you know, just to me, I, we, we don't need to dive too deep into AI stuff, but like how all these money people in suits and, and tech bros are convinced AI is going to take over art. Whereas I feel like this entire show has proven what we love is something that robots can't make, you know, how it's written, how it's acted, and the entire, you know, sort of ensemble collaboration here is uh, humanity uh, making a stand for itself. Yeah, I, I saw those tweets. Um, he had a couple of them about that. And I saw the resulting discourse. And he said he claims he was joking now for what it's worth. I missed that until yeah. you, you said that. Um, I, I'd missed that. But I mean, I, it didn't seem like he was joking, so I'm just yeah. going to assume he wasn't and he just decided to backpedal. But um, I don't know. To me, to my mind, it's just such a gross misunderstanding 
of what this show is. Like this show is literally about who is going to succeed Logan Roy. And it ends when that is decided. I mean, why <laughs> there's not more show if it, I mean, it's called succession. Succession has happened. You know, it's done. And we've talked about it in previous episodes of this show, how much the, the, uh, our entire culture is steering towards just dragging everything out forever and extending yeah. things and adding in bonus content and all this other stuff. And like, let's stop and applaud Jesse Armstrong for like pulling the plug for being like four right. seasons. This is the right length. This is the time to end this. And that's it. And like, yeah, it's okay. We're leaving money on the table. That's all right. Yeah. We're making Absolutely. something good. And we, we have a bond with the viewer that's more important than just, you know, making as much money as we can. So uh, right. obviously a guy like this isn't going to view it that way. But Sure. I mean, all that said, if, if they made something, I'd watch it. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do think I, I just can't imagine doing it. Um, and, and, or maybe the better thing to say is it seems unnecessary in a way that what he said in those tweets, this Jason Cal Calacanis, right. what it, it just seems to miss the point, you know. I think that's his, so. the, this guy's specialty. Let's not give him any yeah. more airtime. Let's move on from that, dude. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So number nine, I just want to say, like, okay, so now you're you're jonesing for something else. Uh, Jesse Armstrong also is the guy behind what I think is one of the best comedies of the past couple of decades, which is uh, Peep Show. Uh, the BBC show starring the same guys who are Mitchell and Webb, uh, who also had a great sketch show before that. But Peep Show is hilarious. Uh, uh, Olivia Coleman, now I think probably like one of the greatest actresses in the world, is on there as just like playing for laughs and is great in that show. And it's just uh, really a hilarious watch. So if you're looking for more of like sort of the uh, the biting sort of uh, writing and comedy aspects that you got in Succession, I, I highly encourage checking out peep show and then also i just have to give a shout out to uh carl who back in the day was sledgehammer which was i remember being a little kid and that was my dad's favorite show on tv a very like sort of naked gun kind of slapsticky like dumb but smart comedy uh so if, if you want to dig into carl when he was younger and then i guess we could mention fisher stevens in short circuit which uh i don't know if that's still uh uh an allowable movie to watch. You know, I think it's cancel cancelable territory these days, but you know, you want to see Hugo uh, Fisher Stevens back when he was in his prime, who by the way, was married to Michelle Pfeiffer when they were both younger, which is crazy to me. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so I think it's interesting, you know, to kind of dive into the uh, previous lives of some of the people involved in this show. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> speaking of F Fisher Stevens, I think that this is a good sort of, um, what was what would the word be? Um, not a reclamation, but sort of like a, a makeup for for that short circuit role. That I'm I'm not blaming him. I think it was bad casting, and it's just like something that it, looks bad in retrospect. Yeah, it was normal back um, then, but now it's cringe. It was unfortunately normal back then, but um, yeah. Um, but David Rash has been in so many things. Uh, before we started started recording i was telling you about a show that you'd never heard of or don't remember at least that, that and that's carl i remember watching for listeners that's carl yeah carl yeah carl and um also really good in in the loop which i think you could say um i think if you're a fan of succession you'd like in the loop and you'd like uh, the thick of it the british tv show that it was based on which was also sort of the inspiration for veep 
um, which also, you know, is related to this show in some ways of like having similar producers and um, having a similar dark vibe that I think, you know, they go different directions with it, but, but I think they come from a similar satirical place. Totally. And uh, yeah. And uh, was uh, Veep also made by a British guy? Armando? Yeah. uh, Armando Annucci. He, he created the thick of it. Then Mm. Veep was like his kind of reinvention of that concept for America and HBO in the loop was the movie version of the thick of it. And I think probably kind of led to Veep being made or interesting something. Yeah. Yeah. And also just having these British guys sort of like mocking America and, and looking at our yeah, system. Always good. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, I definitely need to go back and watch peep show. I didn't realize till late in the game that, that it was uh, Jesse Armstrong was also involved with that show. And that's a show that I tried to watch years and years ago and just wasn't able to get into at the time. But it's like, it's become one of those touchstones that so many people I trust the opinion of, including you, uh, seeing its praises. And I just really want to go back and take a look at it again now. Yeah, I I hate most comedies and I think it's genuinely hilarious. So give it a shot. Uh, All right, and then let's move on to number 10, final thought on Succession. Uh, and I try to think about, you know, what takeaways from this whole series, you know, in a way that like, what haven't I heard said by other people before? And, you know, I think it is a show about trauma. And I guess my one of my core takeaways anyway, is how much trauma for poor people is usually just inflicted upon the people around them. It's the sort of this narrow circle, the the immediate family and, and the, those around them. But then when we're talking about, you know, wealthy and powerful people, the trauma that they feel just gets inflicted upon society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying not to mention our former president here, but uh, I feel like in general, what we see is, is the poison you know, dripping through and how when it becomes like this exponential sort of factor, uh, you know, when when wealth and power involved. So, you know, when when there's trauma within, you know, a a poor or, or, you know, normal, you know, environment, it's more like a grenade. But when it's these these incredibly wealthy and powerful people, it it turns into a missile that can really inflict massive casualties. And uh, to me, that's a big part of what this show is about. Yeah, um, I I think that's a pretty well-observed point there. Um, I don't have any overarching thoughts to add. I I guess I just have one question. Like, what about the fucking Pierce deal? (laughs) Didn't they buy Pierce? These people are fine. Uh, Oh, yeah, they're all billionaires. They all the go. Sure, they're fine. anyway. The Gojo deal was great. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I thought maybe Pierce got wrapped in with the whole ATN Gojo deal. Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I feel I feel I I thought that they bought that separately and then they were going to merge them together once once they screwed the Gojo. I think it was on the table, but never closed. And again, this might be us trying to take it seriously as a business show, which I don't I don't think it ever was. So that's fair point. Fair point. Um, Okay, well, should we leave it there? Let's do it. You can subscribe to or follow this show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. And when I say that, I mean, like, leave it a good review. I feel like that's obvious, but if, you, if you're just going to leave it a bad review, you, you don't have to. 
Anyway, it helps others find the show, which I really appreciate. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at mattruby at hey.com. That's mattruby at hey.com. And if you like this podcast, you should subscribe to the Rubes Letter, where what you just heard first appeared. You can find that at mattrubycomedy.com slash subscribe. And while you're at mattrubycomedy.com, you can also find links to my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, where I post clips of my stand-up and other stuff, too. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.